You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians 2 verses 15 and 16, where we read these words, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word And as Peter says, Paul writes things that are hard to understand. And, Father, as I've often thought and said, Peter does too. Um, Many of these things, Lord, they don't become obvious to us at the beginning. And we look to you, O Father, that you be pleased to bless us as we go through uh, this letter. Um, Father, open up the difficulties of these passages. (laughs) Open them up to our hearts and strengthen us, O Father, with the message that you have uh, given uh, through Paul and through his pen uh, to your church for our edification, for our salvation, for our joy in you. So, Father, we ask these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning what I want to do is really begin by looking at the context, which is in essence going to be a review of last week's message. And uh, from there, uh, we're going to have to look at some phrases and some terms in verse 16. So what I want to do is kind of briefly define um, uh, these phrases and, and one word, because if we don't get a little bit of a handle on what these phrases mean, we're hardly going to understand uh, the sentences. And if we don't understand the sentences, we're not going to understand uh, the message. Now, some of this may not become clear right away. Uh, don't worry about it. These principles that we're working on now are principles that we're going to be meeting over and over again. So we're, you know, if we don't get it on the first run, we might get it on the second. If we don't get it on the second, we're going to be going over this stuff probably 10 times before we're done. We'll get it by the 10th time. So uh, let's just be patient with ourselves. Um, now, the context, you know, obviously, verse 15 and 16, they sit in a context. And the context of, of this, really, Paul's been giving us his bio, biographical sketch, and we've been looking at that for the last couple of weeks. And in verse 11, Paul brings in a confrontation that he has uh, with Peter, which really, this is um, in itself a, a really an astonishing um, uh, story uh, to find that uh, Paul actually has to confront Peter face-to-face because Peter is not in a small error, he's in a great error. Um, And last week we were looking at that. Um, At some point, Peter has found his way down to Antioch. And Peter had been eating with the Gentile believers in Antioch. He had been enjoying what we often refer to as table fellowship with them, which would have been an astonishing sight in this, in this time because one thing that Jews did not do with Gentiles was have a meal together. Uh, so here Peter is, one of the leaders, if you will, of the church. He is in Antioch. He's enjoying fellowship uh, with the Gentile believers. Now, let's just see if we can put ourselves in this scene for a moment Could you imagine after this service going and having lunch with Peter? 
I mean, someone's going to say, Peter, tell us, tell us what Jesus, I mean, what was it like being called out of the fishing boat? What was it like when Jesus said, come and follow me, Peter? And we, oh, we'd just be, wouldn't we be riveted to his answer? Or, or Peter, what was it like when you two were in the boat and Jesus says, you know, throw the, throw the net on the other side. And you had such an astonishing catch of fish that you were scared to death to be in the boat with Jesus. Or what was it like when you fed the 5,000 men plus women and children? What would, maybe this, maybe, maybe these two things might be the things we'd ask. What was it like when you raised Lazarus from the tomb? You'd been in there for four days. What was it like? Or what was it like when you were on the Mount of Transfiguration? I bet these dinner, I bet these luncheons would go on for hours. And it would be like 15 minutes for us, wouldn't it? Now, here comes this party from James. You know, we've been enjoying this thing for who knows how long, for a while. Here comes these folks from James. And, of course, we're excited. Here comes some more folks from, uh, from Jerusalem. Here comes folks from James. And the next thing we know, Peter starts to withdraw from us. And before we know it, he's, it's, you know, he's not going to lunch with us at all. And we see the huddle. Where's Peter at? Well, he's huddled with these guys from Jerusalem, and they're all huddled. You know, huddles are hard things to a church community, aren't they? Huddles. You know, I um, painfully, you know, I, I remember when I first started church planning, we used to have these church planning retreats that I used to go to, and it was a 10-hour drive to go to one of those. I'd get in the car, and I'd drive down to Greenville or drive down to where, wherever they were having. It was usually 10 hours, sometimes a little further, but usually 10 hours. And I'd go down there, and unfortunately, you know, I, I didn't grow up at summer camp at Bon Clark, and I didn't grow up in some of these circles, so I didn't have these friendships with folks that go back for maybe two or three uh, decades. And oftentimes what I was met with down there was two or three different huddles. And what was really funny was the last one I went to, um, one of the church planners down there, you know, we were getting ready to have lunch, and and um, he was talking about his congregation, and he said something like this. They're not quite as friendly as they think they are. And I thought to myself, and then he went off to the huddle. <laughs> and I said to myself, I'm not coming back to another one of these because this is 20 hours of driving. I can be by myself in my study. That was the last one I went to. Um, and I didn't even really get a lot of emails like, where were you? Where you been? We have to be on our guard against that, don't we? I mean, I'm just trying to make a, a point here. Also trying to see, I mean, we have to beware of, of huddles. Um, we've got to be aware of that. You know, we, we sometimes can think maybe we're more friendly than we are. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any particular situation here in mind. I'm just making some, just some global statements. I don't want anyone to think, who's Rick talking about in here? He's not talking about anyone in here. Um, no, uh, not at all. All I'm saying is we have to be aware of this. Let's be aware of huddles. So what's going on here? I mean, if we're, we're back um, in Antioch, Peter's now. He's not having lunch with us no more. He's having lunch with um, these guys from Jerusalem. What are we going to start to think? We're going to start to think there's something wrong with this or maybe something insufficient. I said this last week. We're going to start to think, well, maybe we're not really in on the inside because it just doesn't feel like we're in on the inside. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe we do need, maybe we should go through circumcision. Maybe we should 
begin to become Jew-like so that we can get on the inside. You see, um, that's, that's part of the problem here. Now, last week we looked at Peter's actions, and we looked at Peter's actions from Peter's side of things. And that's something that often gets dismissed. I don't think that we ought to stand here and slam Peter uh, because of what Peter is going through, what James is going through, what these Jerusalem pastors is going through. We get a little glimpse of in Acts chapter 21. You might want to turn there. You don't have to, but uh, Acts 21, page 930, if you care to turn there in in the church's Bible anyway, we get a glimpse of the climate in Jerusalem during this time. Because in this, beginning with verse 17, we have the Apostle Paul returning to Jerusalem. He goes in, he meets with James and the elders. And in verse 19, he relates to them what God has been doing through his ministry among the Gentiles. And in verse 20, when they heard it, they glorify God. But then notice what they say in verse 20 afterwards. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, we're getting a glimpse here of the social political climate of that day. And I think, again, we need to step in the shoes of the ancient Israelite. We know that during that time, there was a strong pull, a strong push, if you will. If we were ancient Israelites, we would have been, we we would have been motivated to really return hard to our religious identity. You know, the historians are telling us this. Uh, Passages such as the one we just read from Acts is telling us this. We would have been emphasizing, you know, our heritage, circumcision, kosher dietary laws, purification rites, these things uh, that Moses handed down. And these things would have been things that would have been part of our heritage for as much as 2,000 years. Depending on how you date things, circumcision, a sign of the covenant, if you will, given to Abraham, potentially 2200 B.C., that's been part of our heritage, that's been part of the identification of our people, for two millennia. You know, now the gospel message comes to us and we understand, listen, to get right with God, we've got to put our faith in Christ. But what about this long heritage? You know, what about this long heritage? We're not going to let go of that right away. And Jerusalem is a mixture of people. It's a mixture of, of people who are zealous for politics in various ways. It's no different than our culture in that way. We're a mixture some of us are more politically minded than others, and we're being always being pulled by currents, if you will. And the current that was pulling those people during that time was this, this return, this return back to our religious heritage. Now, you've got Paul preaching the gospel. What's Paul saying? He's saying circumcision is not necessary. In fact, you can't add circumcision to faith in Christ. Um, he is not uh, calling Gentiles to be circumcised for salvation. Now, as this message goes back to Jerusalem, 
Um, you could see how that could become distorted quite easily, and you could see also how enemies of the gospel would distort this for their advantage. Paul's out there preaching that you don't have to be circumcised. He's preaching that you shouldn't even circumcise your children, blah, 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 blah. And you can see what a problem this is going to create for the pastors who are in Jerusalem trying to minister to the church there and trying to evangelize their brothers and sisters uh, in Jerusalem. Now, I think when we return, with that background in mind, I think this really starts to make sense. What's going on here? Here come these certain men from James. Why? I believe, James, I believe they've been sent. We can't be certain, but I believe that they've been sent. And the reason I believe that they've been sent, maybe I'm just speaking as a pastor. If I was a pastor in Jerusalem during that time, and I'm hearing all these reports, I'd want to know firsthand what's going on. I'd want to send some trusted people up there, go up and see what's going on up in Antioch. Go up there and see for yourself what's happening. So that, I mean, how else could James preach on the subject if he doesn't know what's going on? You need accurate information. So I take it that they are being sent. They're from James. They're, they're advocating James' message. Now, when these folks show up, Peter begins to withdraw from the Gentiles. Why? We're told because he fears the circumcision party. Who is the circumcision party? I think this would be a... a it, it, the, the wording here is basically people of the circumcision. I wouldn't say that they're identical to these certain men from James. Although um, it, it would simply be people of the circumcision. This would be people who are ardent, whether they're believers in Christ or not. They're ardent about circumcision. You know, they're passionate about dietary kosher laws. They're passionate about um, their Jewish heritage. Now, why is Peter afraid of them? Well, persecution is the obvious answer. But before we begin to think that Peter has only selfish motives here, let's again think about a pastor because Peter is also a pastor. Now, I'm going to be away next week, and I will tell you right now, and Tammy will tell you, I miss you when I am away. Peter undoubtedly misses the congregations in Jerusalem. Undoubtedly. I don't think this is reading too much between the lines. He loves them. He also loves his people, and he wants to see the gospel advance for Christ's glory and also wants to see it advance for their salvation. And think about the implications of all of this for salvation. So while no one's looking, Peter's eating with everybody. But now here comes this party from James. Oh, no. Man, we could add something. Okay, Paul's not the only one doing it. Peter's now doing it too. Can you imagine that? They could distort that and make a mess of that. And I think that's what's going on here. I think it's a tactical move on Peter's part to withdraw for a little bit, but it's misguided. It's misguided, and it has a serious blind spot to it. And this is why I so, I so believe in a church government that is a government by a plurality of elders. There is no one other than Jesus himself. There is no one who is capable of leading and guiding the church by himself. Period. There's no one capable of that. We need a plurality. We need a plurality of elders. That's what we see happening here. What's going on here? As well-intended, I'm taking Peter's actions here to be well-intended. As well-intended as Peter's actions are, there's a huge blind spot that they're all caught up in. Peter, the Jews, even Barnabas is caught up in it. 
But Paul sees it. What if Paul wouldn't have seen it? Oh, Peter, you're preaching it. You can almost hear Paul saying, Peter, your preaching is fine, but your actions, your actions are, are at risk of compromising the truth of the gospel. And that is the really overarching point that we need to constantly keep a hold of as we work our way through this stuff. Paul is trying to preserve the truth of the gospel. That's there in verse 5. You see those words there. He says, to them, that is to the circumcising party, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So what? The truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is what Paul is trying to do. He is fighting to preserve the truth of the gospel. And Peter's, Peter and the actions that they're taking here, as well intended as they may or may not have been, they're preaching a message. And it's a message that is contrary to the gospel. Isn't it? You starting to see that? And what we're doing right now is plowing. It might seem hard. You know, when you're plowing, it is hard. You know, uh, Tammy wanted to plant a garden this year, and we hadn't planted one in a while. So that dirt and that little area where her garden is, that dirt was hard. And we haven't had a lot of rain lately, and it's especially hard. You know, the first go, when I was getting that prepared for her, the first go was done with a pick. You know, heavy picks are heavy. And that first go is the hardest go, isn't it? That's what we're doing right now here. We're plowing through this, this work. And it's hard at first. I don't want you to get discouraged, you know. You have to use a pick at the start. You have to plow through the, the hardness of it all. But then it gets easier, you know. After that pick loosens that dirt up a little bit, well, then what do you use after that? You use a hoe. It's a lighter instrument. And you begin to pick at the dirt that's looser until you start to really get a hold of things. And you start to have something that's fruitful. Um, so here's what we got going on. It's summed up in verse 14 nicely. Paul says to Peter, you, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, you were in the middle of everything. In fact, you were the, I, I, if Peter was, if, I can't believe if Peter was at, if we went out to lunch with Peter, I'm guessing Peter would be the focus, probably. Christ would be the focus, but Peter would probably be the one we'd be listening to for most of the part. Don't you think that? Peter, tell us. Peter, tell us. Peter, tell us. He's in the middle of it. Then come these folks, and now he's withdrawing. What's Paul saying? You're in the middle of it. You're living like a Gentile. Now all of a sudden... Now all of a sudden you want everybody to live like Jews when you can't live like a Jew yourself. Now Paul continues in verse 15. And notice what he does in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. It's important that we don't miss this. What's Paul doing? He is, he is now beginning, he's arguing. He wants to argue his case with everyone. He's arguing his case with Peter. He's arguing his case with the other Jews that are present. He's arguing his case with those who have been sent by James, assuming they've been sent by James. And he's even arguing his case against the agitators, the ones who have come in and have said, listen, circumcision is necessary for salvation. And Paul is fighting. It's a battle. He's fighting to preserve the truth of the gospel. And he starts, by with, he starts with a point of contact. We can make application of this right now. He starts with something that everybody agrees on. And this is something that we want to do when we're sharing the gospel with people, is find a point of agreement. 
Try to find a point of agreement. In order to do that, we have to listen. In order to do that, we have to ask questions. If you're talking to somebody, ask them if they believe in God. Do you believe in God? Well, I believe maybe there's something out there. Okay. All right. Let's start there. This is what Paul's doing. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Everybody involved is going to agree with that statement. Now, what exactly is Paul saying there? I think the Ephesians passage, which is why we read it in our service, if you just turn a couple of pages, you'll be in Ephesians 2. And if you look at verses 11 and following, this really sums it up. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul is speaking to Gentile believers, and he wants them to remember that at one time they were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All that could be expressed real succinctly by saying, you were Gentile sinners. What's Paul saying? He's making a distinction between his heritage and theirs. What's Paul's heritage? Paul's heritage is that God has come to the people of Israel. He has called this nation to himself. He has given them the word. He's given them the covenant. He's given them, I should say, covenants. He's given them the covenant of circumcision. He's given them Abraham. He's given them David. He's given them the temple. He's given them the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system. He's given all these things to the the Jews. So you can see how uh, Paul, he's going to start with that. He is a Jew. He's speaking to fellow Jews. And what is he saying? We are all Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's the point of contact that he's going to make. Now, if we go back to Galatians, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not by Gentile sinners. Now, Paul is very masterful here. What he's doing here is very masterful. He's making a point of contact, but it's a carefully calculated point of contact. Because he's going to reverse this. We'll see this in just a couple of minutes. Notice in verse 16, he says, yet we know. Here's another point of contact. Okay, here's something we know. Okay, we know we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We also know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. Paul's practically quoting Psalm 143, verse 2 right there. So this is another point. That everyone's agreed. Everyone he's speaking to is agreed. And I think we need, to, we need to really carefully note this because sometimes I think we can get the impression that this argument looks like this. Paul is preaching faith in Jesus for salvation and everyone else is preaching works. But that's not exactly what's going on here. It's slipperier than that. Paul is preaching faith for salvation. His opponents are preaching faith in Christ for salvation. The difference is his opponents are adding things to this faith. All parties agree you have to have faith in Christ. We need to make a careful note of that um, as we go through here. So Paul's making another point of contact. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now, what do we do with all of that? We're going to have to sort a couple of things out. First of all, what's Paul mean by works of the law? He says it three times. That's emphasis is on purpose. What is meant by works of the law? I just want to be real simple and just keep it, just keep it 
introductory, but we could say that a work of the law is simply anything that we would do in obedience to God's word. That makes sense. What's a work of the law? Anything that we would do that would be in obedience to God's word. All right. Let's look at another one. How about faith in Jesus Christ? Some of you are going to have a footnote after Christ. Um, you know, we have, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Footnote. How many have a footnote there? If you're using the church's Bible, some of your Bibles are going to have a footnote. If you look at the bottom in the margin, you'll see, if you're using an ESV, you'll see that um, there's an or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Let me just mention this really quickly, because some scholars believe that this margin note should be in the text, and the text should be in the margin. What they're trying to show us is that both translations are viable and possible. Now, the position I take on it is the one that the ESV translators are using as the correct one, the one we ought to be using. But either one we take is not... It's not a showstopper. It's still going to lead us to the same place. Let me explain. What is meant by faith in Jesus Christ? Probably what the first thing comes to your mind is meant by that. Faith in Jesus Christ is embracing Jesus. It's embracing Jesus as he is offered in the gospel with the hand of faith. Now, of course, this faith is, let me just say a couple of quick words about this faith. This faith is going to have knowledge, it's going to have assent, and it's going to have trust. That's the classical way that faith has been taught. It's going to have knowledge. You have to have a certain amount of knowledge to have faith in. I can't have, I can't have faith in something I don't know about. This faith that we're talking about has an object. It has something that it's embracing. We have to have certain knowledge about that. Now, sometimes some of us come to faith with a lot of knowledge. There have been pastors who have come to faith. Well, why they, they've been in their pastorates for a while and they, they come to faith. They thought they were in the faith all along and they come to faith. That's happened. There are seminary students who come to faith in seminary. They already know a lot about the Bible. Maybe some of them were, you know, the whiz kids or the quizzers that memorized everything, you know, those ones that get everything right all the time. Paul was like that. Paul had probably memorized a large portion of the, of the Old Testament and then he come to faith came to faith while he was persecuting the church. But most of us probably don't know a whole lot when we come to faith, do we? We know very, very little. In fact, we just know the very basics. What do we know? We know we want Jesus. We just know the basics. So faith has to have knowledge. It also has to have a scent. What's that mean? It has to agree that this knowledge is true. I mean, we have, to, we have to say, you know, okay, I, I know these things, and I, I agree these things are true, and these things are accurate. Unfortunately, a lot of faith stops right there. That's short of saving faith. We can have knowledge of the gospel. We can have lots of knowledge of the gospel. We can believe all of it is true, but still lacking a third component, which is vital, and that is trust. And what do we mean by trust? Trust is, trust is where we say this is in our best interest, to abandon the direction we've been going on in all of our lives and follow after Christ. And it's going to work itself out in commitment, a commitment that's going to grow for sure. You know, again, that is something that's going to grow. And how do we know if we have true saving faith? The only way we can know is by looking at our lives and seeing progressively our lives becoming progressively more and more like Christ. 
Now, that can be difficult because the holier you get, the more of your life that you see out of step with Christ. And if you ever talk with somebody who's been with Jesus for a long time through a lot of stuff, somebody who she would hate me saying this, but somebody like my Aunt Peg, she does not like to be compared this way. She does not like to be referred to somebody who is holy, but she is. And she's been through a lot. And if you talk to her, she will tell you, I am not holy. And what is she referring to? She's referring to because God has shown her so much over through all these years. He's shown, as he shows us things about himself, we see how far off we are. And as he shows us things about ourselves, we see how far off we are. But why would God do that? Because God magnifies his grace every time he does that. Well, I knew it was bad, Lord, but I didn't know it was that bad. Oh, actually, <laughs> you're worse than that, but we're going to go one step at a time. Oh, I'm worse than that. You're much worse than that. And you still love me. Yes, I do. You see how that magnifies the grace of the Lord? So we have to have these things for faith. That's what faith in Christ is. Now, if we go with the alternate translation here and we say it's, it's through the faithfulness of Jesus, well, that's a true statement. Our salvation rests in the faithfulness of Christ. It doesn't rest in our faithfulness. Thank goodness for that. What's our faithfulness look like? It's not very good. Someone might say, Rick, speak for yourself. Okay, I'll speak for myself. It's not very good. But what's Christ's faithfulness look like? It's a perfect record. It's so perfect that Jesus could offer his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of all. If there was one little stain on it, then he would need a savior. And he'd still be in the tomb. The women would have found him and they would have given him a proper burial and he'd have to look for somebody else. But he was gone. He was raised. He appeared. He is the spotless Lamb of God. Amen? And it's on that basis. So it's a matter of means. If you take one translation, if you take the ESV translation in the text, it's means. How are we saved? Faith in Christ Jesus. If you take the other one, then it's the basis, the foundation. Through Christ's faithfulness. It's not a showstopper. I just want to point that out to you. People are always saying there's all these contradictions in the Bible. Just study the Bible a little bit. Many of them evaporate. Some of them still make you scratch your head. Uh, but most of them just evaporate right away. Okay, let's look at one more. And we could spend a long time on this single word, justified. Notice justified comes up a lot. What does justified mean? If you've got an ESV open, you probably have a footnote after the first mention of justified in that text, verse 16. And, and if you look down in the margin, it says counted righteous. And that is actually a really good definition of the word. Um, counted righteous. It has to do with our stand. How, you know, um, last week... At our Bible study at the park, I asked everybody, I think it was last week, I asked everybody, imagine giving a team of engineers this assignment. Okay, we have a holy and just God here who is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly pure, and perfectly loving. And he wants to bring radical rebels into his kingdom. How would these engineers solve that problem? Everybody's scratching their heads, you know. I said, I would submit to you that a team of engineers would never be able, never be smart enough to solve that problem. 
And this is something that sets Christianity apart from all other world religions because Christianity teaches to solve that problem. God himself came in the person of Jesus, lived that perfect life so that a human being could take the penalty of all who would put their trust in him on the cross so that he could uphold his perfect justice, uphold his perfect purity, uphold his perfect holiness, if you will, not compromising any of these things, and yet uphold his perfect love and bringing crooked sinners like us into fellowship with him. And that's how we get justified. And what's it mean to be justified? What it means to be justified is to be able to stand in God's presence. And it's something that happens right away. It's a declaration where the moment Maggie puts her faith in Christ, in that moment, he declares her just. Same thing with Laura. Same thing with Dina. Declared just. Not because of our miserable track record, not because of our miserable selves, but because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. I think see a lot of heads. I think we got you hear that all the time. And I'm, if I ever stop saying that, bump me upside of the head and say, Rick, get back to repeating what you were always repeating. Sometimes this is why we believe in a plurality of elders. You can ask Dan to do it. He'll hit me gently. <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I think so. I think so. All humor aside, I want to ask three questions here that I think we'll put all this together. Three probe, they're probing questions. I'll warn you, they're probing questions. The first question is, are we trusting in who we are, what we have done, or what we are like in order to be made right with God? Are we trusting in who we are, what we have done, or what we are like in order to be made right with God. Where do I get these questions from? I got these questions. So I started thinking along the line of these questions from a sermon that I read. Um, and I've modified them based on people I've talked to. Whereas when you're talking to people, sometimes people say, well, I'm the kind of person that feels this way. Has anybody ever heard that kind of language? Well, something you ought to know about me is I'm the kind of person that takes issue with this. I'm the kind of person. So that's, that's what we're like. Or what about what we do? Or what about who we are? You see, Paul is setting his friends up so, so skillfully in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's talking about who we are and what we're like, isn't he? And what we do. That's his point of contact with them. And I think a lot of times, and Douglas Moo helped me see this. Douglas Moo needs the credit for this. Is that a lot of times we're thinking this is all about the Gentiles being included with the Jews, right? This is all about the Gentiles being included with the Jews. The Gentiles being included with the Jews. But Paul's reversing this. He is setting his listeners up. He is setting his fellow Jews up to say, listen, fellas, you're thinking about this wrong. You're thinking about, you're thinking about the Gentiles being included with you? We are included with them on this point. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. So forget about who you are. Forget about what you're like. 
Forget about what you do. That's what Paul does, isn't it? He says, all these accomplishments of mine are like rubbish in comparison to having Christ. It's the hardest thing to get out of our minds, isn't it? Are we trusting in who we are and what we have done or what we are like in order to be made right with God? Is that what we're trusting in? If we are, we're like the Pharisee that goes into the temple, says, Lord, I thank you. You haven't made me like the other guy. That other guy. And we want to avoid that. Second question. Are we convinced that only Christ, namely his perfect life and death on the cross, can take away our sins and render us right to stand in God's presence? Do we really believe that? Are we convicted of that? The only way that we could possibly... I mean, listen, there's all these religions out there. All these people are so sincere, following all these things. Are we going to have the audacity to say that only Christ could take away the sins of the world? Is that what we're saying? Are you convicted of that? Are you convinced of that? Because that's an astonishing claim to our culture, isn't it? If you haven't had somebody come up to you and say, how can you be so arrogant as to believe that your way is the only way, then you haven't been sharing your God, the gospel very much because that's something that's going to happen. And we've talked about that before, haven't we? What gives you the right to convert everybody? Why are you always trying, why are you trying to convert everybody? What makes you think your Bible is the right Bible? What's our answer to that? One word, Jesus. I'm doing this because Jesus told me to do this. What makes you think you're the only, this is the only way to find, because Jesus said he's the only way. It comes down to who you believe Jesus is. And don't fall into the ridiculous notion that he's a great teacher unless you believe that everything he taught is great. How can he be a great teacher if he taught a bunch of babbling nonsense? Don't assume just, just because someone gives a lot of lip service to Jesus that they're in the fold. That's not a good assumption. There's a lot of people out there that admire Jesus that are far from him because they're not trusting in this second point. They're not convinced that he's the only way. Or they just simply have a scent. They have knowledge and a scent, but they haven't put their trust in him. How do we know if we've trusted him? Are you following him? Is he the prize of your life? Is he the joy of your life? That's going to that's gonna ebb and flow through our walk, isn't it? There's times where it's stronger and there's times where it's weaker. But is it the overall principle of your life? I always want to be careful with that application because some of us who have gone through a low time might think, oh, why? If I lost my salvation. I don't want to do that to you. Lots of factors can play in how we feel What's going on in our lives? What's going on in our families? What pressures are we under? Lots of things can affect that. But is he, the, is he really, at the end of the day, the governing principle of your life? That's the question to ask, right? One more. Now that we're walking in Christ, are we trusting in him alone for our standing with God? Or are we adding something? Like our prayer life. or our Bible reading regiment. Because these are joy killers. You add something to faith in Christ, you're going to kill your joy. You're going to kill your Bible reading regiment. 
you're going to kill everything. You are not going to feel like coming to church half the time. And while we're on that subject, we don't always feel like coming to church, do we? Maybe some of us do. If that's the case, that's wonderful. But let, let me ask someone who's been walking with Jesus for, say, more than 20 years. Over the course of that 20 years, have you always felt like coming to church every Sunday? I doubt it. But we do. Let's pray that we continue to. Those moments are dangerous moments, by the way. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. There are times where we need prayer. There's times where we need to pray for each other. But one of the reasons for that is we're adding something to Christ. That's one of the common reasons that causes our hearts to dull. We're adding our our personal performance of something, whether it be our prayer life or it be our Bible reading regiment, or we're comparing ourselves to what we think we see in someone else. Listen, we're all sinners. What we often see is not the true picture. Spurgeon used to bring that out a lot. I often would wonder if it wasn't to the embarrassment of those who were in his church and leadership. But it's a true statement. I think that's enough. What do you think? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for your mercy as we think about ourselves and as we think about our personal performance and how weak it can sometimes be, Lord. May we not continue to look at that very long. May, we, may you give us grace, Father, to turn our eyes to you and look to you and look to your achievements and look to your glory to look to your beauty, to look to your grace, and to look to the hand that's motioning us to come to you, that we may bask in your glory, that we may bask in your beauty, that we may bask in your grace. Oh, Father, help us to see that hand that's waving us onward. Help us to see that hand that's taking our own. Oh, Father, help us, oh, Lord. If we're adding anything to a simple faith in Christ Jesus, Lord, show us and reveal to us. Oh, Father, your mercy is greater than we can conceive and comprehend. May we bask in that. Oh, Father, we thank you, O Lord, that it is in Christ alone that we are saved. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.